Hello and welcome to the Drug Policy Voices podcast. This is an ESRC-funded research project which aims to engage people who use drugs into debates about drug policy. Each month we'll speak about the findings of our research, discuss the hot topics connected to drug use and drug policy, and talk about the ways in which you can participate in our research. Our vision is to educate, inform and amplify your voices. To find out more information about us, including research ethics, privacy statements and where to go for advice and support, you can visit our website at www.drugpolicyvoices.co.uk. Hello listeners, welcome to episode two, where we're discussing identifying or being known as a drug taker. I spoke to Matt Southwell from EuroNPUD, that's the European Network for People Who Use Drugs, about this topic. And whether it's associated with stigma, so disapproval or judgment from others, or how this can be a source of empowerment and a positive sense of self and identity. And in his case, how it links to activism. Then Melissa and I have a chat about the topic of identifying as a drug taker and encourage you to be involved in the research and the debate. But first up, Matt. So thank you for agreeing to be part of this podcast discussion. I guess what I'll do first of all is just kind of introduce you. Matt Southwell, you're an experienced drug practitioner and manager. You worked at the NHS for many years. You're also an activist in drug user groups and networks, local, national and global levels. And I know you for your work that you've done with Euro NPUD. So I'll ask you to uh, talk a bit more about that within the conversation. Today, I guess what we want to talk about then is identifying as a drug taker. And, you know, one of the things here is for our project, we we want to speak to as many people as possible with lots of different experiences of drugs. And we're encouraging people to take part in our, our research. So from, you know, hearing you speak before, you've got a very interesting story about coming out, so to speak, and one that's kind of had, you know, both positive and negative consequences. So really would love to talk to you today about the kind of stigmatising effects of being known as a drug taker, but also connected to your experiences, the empowerment that you've uh, you've had from being part of a collective and how that's led to lots of activism, great activism and, and policy change. So basically, can you tell us a bit about Euro NPUD then and what you do there? Yeah, so thank you very much for inviting me to join you in this really interesting project. Um, so my name is Matt Southwell. I'm the uh, project executive of Euro NPUD, which is the European Network of People Who Use Drugs. So we're a, what's called a drug user rights network, and we particularly work in the European Union and its neighbourhood, which means that we do a lot of advocacy through the, the EU, but also in all the other countries in, in the European Union and surrounding the European Union. Our focus is on the rights and the health of people who use drugs. We are campaigning and advocating and representing, and we're also running projects that help drug user groups engage in peer-led harm reduction, um, and, uh, and we also help them strengthen their own networks. Excellent and very wonderful and worthy work you do, and I can't wait to hear uh, more about that. I'm sure our listeners are going to be really keen to hear about that. Hearing you speak before, I was really drawn to your experiences and your story. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how identifying or being known as someone who uses drugs has impacted your life? Yeah, so look, I started out as one of the UK's first harm reduction workers and was picked up in the NHS reforms and became a health service manager and went on to be a professional head of NHS drug services in East London. 
I, my team was renowned for employing drug users, um, and we, we had a special program of employing the first people on methadone and then the first active drug users to work in our team. We also worked in partnership with local drug user groups and used the community mobilization approach. The assumption always was, as I rose up through the organization from being a, a first worker to being then the, the final manager, was that I wasn't a drug user. And it was never explicitly discussed. I never denied it. But I think people always assumed the drug users were the peer workers. They were the frontline workers. Actually, by the end, half my management team were drug users. Because when you create a welcoming space, it attracts people to want to come and live their lives in an honest way. Now, over time, I felt a contradiction. I felt that I was pushing all these other drug users to be open, creating a space where people could organise. Yes, I was an open organiser in within the community, but externally, if I did press work, I did it under a false name. And so I, there was a point at which I started to say, I think I should come out publicly. I think this is something that would be the logical conclusion of what I'm doing. It's, we always ask the drug users who experience the worst problems and are forced out into the open because of their drugs use to stand up for our community. And that felt like a really burdensome problems are put on them. So 10% of people who use drugs have a problem, 90% of people don't. So we we are the same community, but I think it's very tough to put all the representation on the 10% of people who are struggling. So at that time, I started to talk to my mentor about coming out. I had about 4,000 people on methadone under my service at that time. And so for two years, my mentor was saying to me, look, it's egotistical to think about your need to come out publicly is more important than the needs of the drug users you have power to, to provide care to. But then Tony Blair came into power as, uh, or started to be clear that he was going to become the prime minister. We were all very concerned in drug services because he's one of these social democrat Puritans. And uh, he started up with this ridiculous model of the anti-drug czar and all these types of things. But particularly, he framed opiate substitution therapy as being justified because we were all criminals. And it changed the discourse from the HIV epidemic where we fought together to end HIV to then the OST being done as criminals. And that, that drove me to come out. I then said, right, I'm now going to talk publicly. And I did a TV documentary with the BBC, uh, which yeah, where I came out publicly as a drug user. Yes, you did. And uh, you talk, you, you've talked about that kind of documentary as well. Just to clarify for our listeners, OST is opioid substitution therapy. But in the UK, we largely use methadone and buprenorphine as substitutions for people dependent on the heroin. It's really important kind of what you're saying there, because I think that you're right. We do kind of burden those people who are in treatment and those people who have contact with services. We, we do burden them with the kind of all people. That's what we understand drug takers to be. If you say to somebody drug user, I think the image that often comes to mind for people is somebody in treatment. And we know, you know, we know, don't we, that the vast majority is lots of people take drugs, but those what we call kind of visible drug takers are those ones that have come into contact with treatment services or they've come into contact with the criminal justice system. And that kind of skews our uh, perception of who the drug takers are. So you, you talk about the documentary then, what happened in the documentary? Yeah, so one of the interesting points is the reason the documentary came about was because the BBC did research into its own reporting of drugs. And one thing they noted was every single time a TV uh, news piece talked about drugs, they showed working class Glasgow estates. But actually, the highest prevalence drug using area in the country is Brighton. Mm -hmm. So why are we always showing working class estates in Glasgow? Well, that's part of the demonisation of drug taking. 
So they they gave me this chance to speak to front a program with other drug users speaking with their faces covered. And it went out at 11.30 at night um, because it was seen as too controversial. The news, your normal program show would have been at 7.30. We had a live chat. Um, it, was, it was nominated as program of the week by the Sunday Telegraph. And it was given a huge profile. And in fact, we had a live chat afterwards and it was about to become the largest ever live chat on the BBC when we crashed the BBC website. Mm-hmm. And it was just users coming on and saying, oh my God, I've been seen. How did you get people to tell our story? Thank you. Oh my God. And it was just this moment of, I mean, it was a remarkable moment. Just it really showed our community standing up and saying, finally, we have been seen. Uh, and then for whatever happened next in terms of the challenges, that moment made it worth it. All, it was that moment of just sitting in that BBC office, just hearing this community virtually go, yes, finally. Yeah. And, that, and that sets it up for where it happens next. And this was around the year 2000, was it? Was it 99, 2000? That kind of resonates with me because I was kind of going out at that time, you know, going out clubbing and being part of those communities. It was huge. It really did give you that sense of empowerment, of collective and togetherness. You know, whether you take drugs or not, you know, it's powerful being part of a community. And when you realise that sometimes if you're the first person to stand up and say these things and you get that, that rush and that collective action as part of it and solidarity I guess then um, yeah that's really powerful so kind of moving on then thinking about what happened next in your story I guess after the documentary I had tried to come out in fact six months earlier I'd been asked by Channel 4 to do a documentary with them and I had spoken to my chief executive by this time I'd moved away from being general manager for drug services I was actually a general manager for acute elderly services by that point running a 3.8 million pound hospital service and I'd moved because I understood that it was hard to be drug service manager and also speak as a drug user I thought if I reorientated my career then maybe I could do that in my private time but that actually was hugely problematic so initially I if I could come out my trust asked me for six months to talk to the board and because I was a third tier manager in the trust I was a very senior manager and then I went back six months later and said look I've now been offered this opportunity by the BBC and in fact my chief executive hadn't spoken to the board and then she asked me for another six months and I said no and yeah look at that moment we had a discussion about my commitment to my work Mm -hmm. and I made a statement which I think probably lost me my job which was where I said listen you need to understand my commitment has always been to the drug using community while you serve my community I remain an absolutely loyal member of staff but please never understand my misunderstand my loyalty and in her eyes i saw i saw my job disappear out the door at that moment in time i didn't face that very no people started to come up because i'd come out publicly as an ecstasy user that was a i was actually a poly drug user but i chose to talk about my ecstasy drug taking that seemed less risky at, at that time yeah it didn't immediately hit me it took a while for my employer to pick up on it but yeah then i was i was called in put on guard and leave and i never came back i'd served for 10 years i was in a award-winning manager. I was on the you know, top management team. I never saw my staff again. I literally came into work one day. They put me on garden leave six months later. Then I left. Luckily, I was a trade union member and I'd been a very good manager who treated trade unions very right. So when, in fact, I was such a senior manager, I had to be represented by the Unison rep for the whole of London. And she just laughed at my management when they accused me of being a bad manager. She said, actually, I'm one of the, man- Matt's one of the few managers I know about because my staff have come and told me what a good manager is. So please don't, don't try to spin your description 
using guilt discrimination as bad management. I got a six-month payoff, and that allowed me to set up the UK drug user movement. I took that money and used it to invest. I also had a consultancy team that was earning quite a lot of money as a freelance consultant as well, but my main customer was the probation service, and I lost that when the probation the chief probation officer for London said, we cannot have a criminal training our staff. I was the top-performing trainer. The training director was devastated. I mean, they said, look, you've just taken away our best trainer. And I wasn't even training them about drugs. I was training them about motivational interviewing. Yeah, I think it's such a powerful story. And it makes me feel so infuriated for you because there's nothing to do with this. It's anything to do with your capabilities of a manager. This is about a judgment on who a drug taker is, the criminal aspect that is associated with it, the possession of, you know, that it's not drug taking isn't against the law, but the possession is. And you were speaking your truth and you finally got to speak your truth. That had consequences. Do you feel that this has enabled you to be part of the bigger movement, to be part of this drug activist movement? And so can you talk about some of the kind of positive changes then that you've seen happen over the years in terms of the activist movement and what you've been a part of? I think there's times when I've felt really positive about the work I'm doing. Initially, when we mobilised 45 drug user groups in the UK to form a national network, and then we got caught in a battle between the Department of Health and the UK drug, Anti-Drug Czar's office, and they destroyed our network. Then I had a period of drug dependency, you know, because when you lose hope, drugs can really change their place in your life. I'd been 20 years controlled, hard partier, and then actually, when they kicked the hope out of me, I did fall into dependency for a period of time and took my time to come back again. When I came back, our global network was in in trouble at that time because I'm an organizational management expert and they asked me to come and help. I agreed to do three months and it became about three years, but that led the drug user movement into doing international development work. No, we are now completely networked into the United Nations. WHO never makes a policy about drug users without consulting and involving drug users in the guideline development process. No, so things have really transformed now. I'm just about to sit on the advisory group for the European Monitoring Group on Drug and Drug Abuse. They're writing new standards about people who inject drugs. And again, they wouldn't do that without including those communities. So that has really been a dramatic process. Of course, there were times when we were fighting with each other. We looked like we lost, lost our funding. And I sort of asked myself, why did I commit myself to this crazy world? And now I'm in a place where I sit back and say, what a great decision that was. And look at my life. I, I get to live freedom. I get to meet drug users all over the world. I work with drug users in Afghanistan, Myanmar, you know, talking to drug users in Africa this morning. You know, real amazing opportunities. And the most amazing thing is just the quality of the drug user activists around the world. Now, I was talking to drug users from Burundi and, um, and Zanzibar this morning. I mean, just amazing activists who are engaging their, their country leaders and standing up for their communities in just the same way that I've done. But I do it in the UK and however brave I think I am for doing it in the UK, my bravery is nothing like uh, Rahim who stands up in Afghanistan or Kazim who stands up in, in Zanzibar or Richard who stands up in Burundi. These people are standing up in very challenging settings and are putting their personal testimony on the line. And so for me to back them up is really the proudest thing I do in my work. That's amazing. And I think that, again, it's about that support and that activism and about, you know, whether this is a, you know, well, it is a global network, isn't it? So that you can support different countries where, you know, the laws can be very, very different, certainly from a human rights perspective. So in terms of activism, then, if people are, you know, some of our listeners might be wanting to be part of this movement and part of this collective. So in what ways could they get involved with Euro Endpoint then? Yeah, so look, the drug user rights movement has 
local groups. So like in my local area of Bath, we organize together and we run needle and syringe programs with local drug suppliers. We give out naloxone. In other areas, you see dance drug users coming together. In other areas, you'll find cannabis users organizing through social clubs. Although we have regional and global networks as well, and they're very important in the work they do, we always say that it's the local work that is most important because that's the work where we have most direct impact on our communities, where we, we work with each other. I would suggest to people listening to this, now think about the drugs that interest you. Mm. Think about mm. what ones matter to you and then look at the community movements that are around that. If you're into psychedelics, there's the Great Psychedelic Society. If, there's, if you're into cannabis, there's the Cannabis Social Clubs. Something like 30,000 people involved in the Cannabis Social Clubs in, in the UK. All these private little networks growing cannabis together, staying away from crime, staying away from the police if they can, and, mm. and giving each other really high quality cannabis in a really ethical uh, model. And then dance drugs has been more challenging in the UK. We did have a good movement and it's it's lost ground, but I think we've got people on the dance floor trying to gather people together again. And then the hard drug user movement, ironically, is probably the strongest part of our movement for the reason we were talking about before, because the government's always been happy to talk to people who they see as patients. That's part of the patient response. What we had was was getting them to talk to everybody else because they they're happy when we're patients as soon as we're impaired human beings who use drugs for healing or personal growth or partying or dancing that's where they start to have a little bit more discomfort not a little bit more a huge amount of discomfort and they and in the past they've just refused to work with those groups and why do you think that is why do you think that they can acknowledge the patients and and acknowledge people with issues but ignore the vast majority of people who don't what what, what do you think is going on there I think there's a prohibition narrative. It's, it's that they've created. I mean, we have to be understand where prohibition comes from. I mean, Nixon's Nixon's advisers let the cat out of the bag, and we now know why Nixon introduced prohibition. It was for two reasons. He wanted to deal with the Black Civil Rights Movement, and he wanted to deal with the anti-war left movement. And he knew that you couldn't set up laws against those two groups, but you could pick out the cocaine use among the, the, the black population and the LSD and cannabis use among the hippie population and target them for that. So essentially, drug policy was always intended as a form of social, social control. That's what it's about. And then you have various different demonic stereotypes that get played out in that process. And, and clearly, the idea of people being self-empowering, having a great time, healing, going on spiritual journeys, exploring their internal psyche, you know, going through trauma stripping or self all these things that drugs allow you to do, that's not the narrative that they want. So the patient now, what we call the pathologization of drug taking, is this idea of always, no, it's a disease, they're all sick, no, you have to hit rock bottom, all these old stereotypes, no, treat people terribly because actually that will help them change, which we know is just not the truth. And so trying to have this honest discourse where it's not about saying that 10% experience isn't relevant, but it's saying it's a much more complicated pattern. There's a much more complicated range of experiences that people have. Sometimes they're problematic. Sometimes they're really empowering and helpful. Sometimes they can be a bit of both. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've found within my work, you know, kind of interviewing people about drug use is that people can talk from a, a recovery narrative. So they can talk about things that happened in the past and, and how they're kind of in treatment or coming through that. It's harder to talk from a, a current drug user narrative and to accept that because, as you say, prohibition prohibits the possession the cultivation, the supply of certain substances. So to say that you are taking those drugs and that, you know, you're doing that basically unproblematically, that doesn't feed into the, the government uh, policy, does it, of prohibition? Um, yeah, so that, yeah, 
Interesting. So I think, you know, kind of moving on, thinking about our project, because we want people to, you know, talk to us. We want people to engage in these debates. We do this confidentially and anonymously. We know that there are consequences of people kind of uh, talking about their drug use. They might not want people to know. They might not have people even around them that know about their substance use. And that's a lot to do with stigma. Obviously, there's the consequences of maybe losing your job or the judgment that you might get from other people as well as also criminal consequences. So what do you think needs to happen to try and reduce that stigma then? Does there need to be a policy change first or do you think there needs to be more collective action or a bit of both? I I think it I think that we need policy change, but policy change is achieved by collective action. So I think it's a, it's, it's actually both both those things. And look, I think as drug users coming together and coming together and saying, how do we become agents for change? Now, rather than always framing us as the problem, we know that we're often the solution. So how do we come together? So early on, one of the campaigns that the International Network of People Who Use Drugs ran was called the Drug User Peace Initiative. It was actually saying, we're sick of this war. Let's declare a peace and let's sort it out. And it was really trying to change that narrative. Clearly, if we had decriminalisation, where possession of drugs was not a criminal offence, so you take people who use drugs out of the criminal process, Portugal, Czech Republic are good examples of this. That has a huge impact. We know that treatment numbers in Portugal have gone up by 50% and HIV rates have come down by 50%. So substantial shift. But the reason you only so need community mobilisation is our peers in Portugal still say the police harass them. They just find different ways to harass them. As activists, it's not just about getting decrim, it's, and it's not even about just getting legalisation. It's also about fighting for our rights. We, we have been treated as subhuman for a long period of time. Now, people assume that we are not entitled to human rights because uh, we are breaching the law. So therefore, you can do almost anything to us because we are outside the law. And our peers know that on the ground. The police breach the policing rules all the time with drug users because they know we won't complain. That sort of pattern, I think, of actually fundamentally changing stigma, yes, is about community mobilisation. Then it's about uh, law change and policy change. And then it's about being part of the process so that we make sure what happens next is fair to us because it won't automatically be. And I think, you know, a lot around respect and respecting people and respecting people's rights and accepting people's behaviour. And, you know, that that's part part and parcel. There's a lot of talk about kind of, you know, issues such as addiction, what's recreational use, what's kind of functional use and all this kind of stuff. But I think ultimately this is about kind of empowering communities and having respect. And I think one of the things as well that we are trying to encourage is that range of voices. You know, it, we have to hear from the, the recovery community. We have to hear from, you know, people within treatment and people with criminal justice experience. But to broaden that out and to make sure we we hear from those hidden groups of people, those people that don't normally get, a, because they're worried about the stigma, because they're not identified as a drug user, it's really important for us so that we understand the breadth of drug taking. And then if we can understand that and have a better conceptualization of that, that's when we can try and think about policy change and talking about well these are people's experiences and you know although that people care about their health they also care about their rights and they also want to talk about pleasure and we're going to talk about pleasure in our next podcast as well so you know broaden our understanding of pleasure there so yeah it's really empowering to hear you kind of speak about that what do you think about these terms then we talked a little about this with Stuart Taylor in our last podcast so we were talking about the the term drug whether we should reclaim it or abandon it what do you 
think about from like a, a an activist and a um, a user group perspective? What do you think about those labels such as addict, such as junkie, such as recreational user? How you know how beneficial are those to our understanding of you know drug users, or should we just kind of abandon these labels? Do you think? Look, I think within it, within any struggle, there is a, a fight over language. We've seen this within the LGBTIQ movement. We've seen this within the HIV movement. So, for example, diplomatically, we now talk about people who use drugs or people who inject drugs or people or women who use drugs. So we always are clear diplomatically that we are people who use drugs. Now, that's that comes from the HIV movement, people living with HIV. And it's about framing our human rights. It's about saying, calling us a drug user doesn't allow you to think we're not humans, therefore we don't have rights, human rights. So that's so that's one important thing. I still use the term drug user personally. For me, it feels like a description of who I am. I'm not so uh, concerned with it. It's different, different if other people are using it about me. I'm maybe a bit more sensitive around it. Terms like junkie, for example, in our, in our community is a highly privileged title that is only used by people who inject heroin. So those are, those people who don't inject heroin would respectfully stand back and not use those, that title because it's actually part of our community. Of course, when it's used against us, then it then it has a different level of stigma. And it's similar to the way uh, the lesbian community has adopted the word dyke, which was used as an attacking word, and then they've absorbed it to neutralised it. So sometimes language can be used like that. Um, we're still quite early in our history. The challenging is the addiction language, because that really links back to this disease model or medical model, totally unfounded in the science. There's absolutely no evidence that drug use is a disease, or drug, drug can, or what would be called substance use disorder or substance use condition is a, is a disease. It's a serious of conditions it's a series of issues that has physical and psychological dependency however when you start to talk about as addiction it, it builds in this sense of helplessness that we need to appeal to a higher power who is either a doctor or a god or possibly both and now these types of challenges is all about taking away our power now i'm trained in motivational theory i know that building your self-esteem building your self-belief is just as important as understanding the problems that you have if you just focus on the problem and don't value the human being then you just recognize what problems you are have and can't do anything about so i think there's a real sense of actually using language that understands that we are human beings first that we some of us will have problems the majority of us don't and also things are very much more complicated and i think that's one of the challenges of prohibition and addiction theory is they try to say drug use is a very simple condition that if you just do this everything will be okay and anybody that has used drugs knows that different drugs are very different the settings we use drugs in are very different the same different people can use the same drugs and have totally different experiences so highlights the complexity that we maybe understand a little bit better i think it's good i think what it's one of those things where you know it's some people don't want to be associated you know it doesn't define who they are i think uh, their drug use doesn't define who they are and they don't take on a drug taking identity some people do and some people it really is it's it's a good way of understanding who they are um and you know and people take pride in it you know we see that with the cannabis community psychedelic community as you're saying as well the kind of uh, treatment community injecting heroin community as well that it can have a positive influence 
But if you feel like you're being labelled it in a negative term all the time, or, or if somebody is trying to, you know, only see you as a drug taker, I think that sometimes is the frustrating aspect. And, and a lot of people are saying, I'm more than just this. And I think what we the message that we have is like, we know that you are. And we agree totally with you that people are human beings with drug taking experiences, all of which will help us understand, you know, what drug use means in society and, you know, how we should respond to it. Great what you said. Um, so in, in terms of kind of, obviously, we're trying to engage people in this in this research, in this project, and we're going to be asking people from now to um, try and engage with us in different ways. It might be writing, it might be like doing short interviews, it might be kind of more creative methods like poetry or art. So what kind of, um, you know, what kind of advice or encouragement, I suppose, would you give to people to be a part of this project? Uh, not to kind of blow our own trumpet or anything, but why do you think that projects like ours are, are important? Yeah, look, I'm very happy to blow a trumpet for your project. I think anything that captures the voices of people who use drugs and allows us to be part of a discourse is great. And I think though, I've learned something very important from your project, which is 20% of people who use drugs are a bit like me, who are experts who you know, really understand drug policy very well. And 80% of people, of course, aren't. You know, they live normal lives, they take drugs, and they, and they don't have a, a particularly expert role in drug policy. Now, that's a really important learning. I was talking to students for Sensible Drug Policy about this last night, in fact, saying, look, we shouldn't take for granted that we actually have got all our own people on side yet with drug law reform. So I think as we start to listen to our community, we can understand the reasons for their thinking and we can start to engage in a greater dialogue. But for me, that dialogue that now needs to take place between the expert part of our community and the less expert part or the more normal living part is probably a better way of describing them I think that's a very very important piece of work that I hadn't realized we needed to do in terms of why to come out Look, I think there's something really great about, so if you ask me what my identity is, yes, it's partly being a drug user, and it's also particularly being a drug user activist. And that, and that for me is a very important part of my identity. And really, that's what I came out as in more than being a drug user. I came out as a, a drug user activist. And I had a big debate with my boss at the time who said, but what drugs are you using? And I said, it's none of your business. And I said, and, he's, and I said, why does it matter to you what drugs I'm using? I'm telling you I'm a political activist fighting for drug user rights. That's my point. I'm not asking you to have a discourse with me about my personal what I do at home when I'm away from work and they said well if you were using ecstasy it might be one thing but if you're using cocaine we might have to protect patient property from you and I went what do you seriously think I, oh, I run a 3.8 million budget do you seriously think I'm going to be going around the lockers stealing old people's clothes is that what your perception is of me and it was just this understanding of saying so partly coming out is challenging that and saying to people this is how I frame my identity this is who I am I would really strongly say come into the community first and come out later because mm -hmm being part of the community is a very important part of resilience i think to come out on your own without a community around you for me that would have been a very very isolating and different experience i went through a lot of tough times but i had a lot of friends around me who held me through that process because they saw i was doing something for the community now, it was challenging i came out on my own but i definitely did it with other people yeah. 
And we, we, we need people. I think if anything, if, if COVID has taught us anything, how, how long did I take to talk about COVID in this interview? So if COVID has taught, COVID has taught us anything, we are missing people. We are missing our communities. We are missing, you know, you know, people within my own life, you know, who are involved in music and clubbing and events. You know, we are missing that sense of connection. And, you know, we, we kind of hope that we can bring people together through this project. Um, and that people don't need to identify who they are in this project as well will keep their, their identities safe. So it's a kind of safe space to talk about those things and be confidential. And then, you know, we hope that more people will, will join the movement, the movement such as yours. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been a really great chat to you today. And I know that our listeners will really uh, be really enthused. So before that we, we kind of go, I want to talk just a little bit about policy. And I know that you could talk about it all day, but how, um, you know, you've spoken about in a recent article, you know, that COVID has had some really positive changes in the community. So, you know, kind of talk about those uh, a little bit if you can, and um, just talk about how optimistic you are uh, that things are going to change in the future. I think COVID has been very interesting. I mean, I've really been in exile from the UK in terms of policy and practice for 15 years. I've been working internationally and in Europe, um, partly because I was so frustrated by what had happened in the UK and I felt there wasn't space to do the work I was trying to do. COVID forced me back into the UK because it locked me down and I couldn't travel. And it's been a huge loss for me because I spend about half my time traveling. But it's really forced me to be back in the UK again and really to understand that something seems to be changing right now. That there seems to be, I think, the Glasgow HIV epidemic, where there was an outbreak of HIV among street homeless drug users. That's really shocked people that we've had a third HIV epidemic in this country nearly 30 years after our first epidemic. So that's been a big shock. There's also been this huge challenge, which is we've got lots of people on methadone and buprenorphine. How are we going to manage those people during lockdown? They've given lots of people take-home doses. All the fears about people selling their drugs, running out of drugs have just not occurred at all, really highlighting that this population in treatment are actually, just like the rest of us, a pretty re- no, normal group of people who, if you trust them and treat them with respect, they respond in kind. And that's really led senior policymakers to think we really need to rethink our current model of drug treatment, which I'm delighted they've caught up with because we've been saying this for about the last 20 years, but fantastic. We're glad when people agree with us. And then the other thing is about how we get needles and syringes and silver foil and crack pipes out people during this period of time but and i think no drug user groups have just stepped up across the country no drug user groups have kept the connections we give out needles and syringes through the local drug using community in my hometown of bath about a thousand needles and syringes going out a week five or six different types of equipment huge diversity only every other area in the country achieves about 30 percent of coverage so it just shows if you just use fixed site and pharmacy needle and syringe programs, you don't get the reach of using people who inject drugs to help you. And that's the same for clubbers. It's the same for cannabis users. It's the same for each subset of our community. There's different people who have different levels of expertise. And so I wouldn't get ask people not to get too lost in the difference between us all. Let's look at the commonality we have. We have a shared experience of taking substances, of being able to manipulate our minds and manage our bodies. We have a shared experience of criminalisation and we have a shared desire for something to be different. Now, by all of us coming together, we will understand our complexity and make sure what happens next 
is what we need it to be. Now, in terms of optimism, I am starting to allow myself to be a little bit more optimistic about what the post-pandemic period might look like. I think like many people, we're all gagging to get out there to festivals and parties and to have a good time. I think that offers an opportunity for us to have a discourse around drug policy and to try to make this post-pandemic period like a new 1945 period where great social change comes after a period where the, the human race has been under a lot of pressure. Now, Will that happen? That's up to us. It's, not, it's never up to somebody else. It's always up to us. No, do we want to make it happen? Do we believe it can happen? And are we willing to invest the time to fight for a better future? I, some experts describe drug policy as a multi-generational struggle. And there's part of me that goes, yeah, OK, I get that. And there's another part of me saying, what, I've got to fight my whole life for somebody else to have a decent party without the police harassing them. Actually, I'd quite like to have that opportunity myself in my own lifetime. And I'm sure many of you else, other people listening, would also like to be able to party without the police on our back, would also like to be able to have a joint without someone harassing us, whatever it is that you particularly enjoy. Thank you so much for being part of this second episode. I know that our listeners will take a lot from it. Um, it's been great to chat to you. And uh, yeah, we uh, here at Drug Policy Voices, we fully support your work and we look forward to continuing uh, speaking to you in the future. So thanks. Thanks so much for that, uh, having me on your show. I really appreciate it. And finally, Melissa and I chat about this topic, identifying as a drug taker, and talk about ways in which you can get involved in this research. So is that <laughs> Hi, Melissa. So, Hi, um, Hello, Melissa. So this month, we're looking at identifying as a drug taker, you know, whether in fact actually people see themselves as a drug user or a drug taker, a user of a particular substance, let's say. Um, and whether they find kind of being a drug taker or these terms stigmatizing, empowering or both. So what what do you think about that? For me, I think it can be both. I think a person's identity as a drug user, as somebody that uses drugs, can be stigmatizing, can be empowering. And it could be both simultaneously. And I think it's tied up a lot with this kind of idea of power, whether you have it, whether you don't. Um, because it can be used in a way, like we've said, to empower you because you could perhaps live more honestly, um, more bravely, more courageously. You know, I think it can um, give you power and a sense of control over your lives. But I think it also depends on how you view your place or what your role is in society as well. So it could equally be quite stigmatising and there could be many very valid reasons that would prevent you from being willing to admit your drug use or, or you might be willing to admit it to some people and to not others depending on your social circle or the types of substances that you are using and like I said in terms of your place and your role in society it could be linked to your job for example as it was with Matt very much when he came out like will coming out as a person who uses drugs affect your livelihood will it affect your reputation so that could be some of the ways that it could be stigmatizing but at the same time, it could be very empowering because it could form a crucial part of who you are, perhaps because you yourself have overcome a dependency on certain drugs and you felt powerless. And if you are able to identify as somebody who used substances in the past, perhaps it could be a crucial reminder of who you are now, 
and what you've overcome. Mm. Similarly, I would say that if you are using currently controlled substances like cannabis for medical reasons, you could be really angry that you are not getting access to medicine that you ought to have and you want to raise this as a social justice issue or a human rights issue. That then forms a very key part of your identity, doesn't it? And your values. And it helps then give you a sense of power over your situation. So that then can be very empowering in itself. I think it can be both. I think it's quite complicated. And yeah, it is quite a complex issue, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, you know, and I think this is why we want to have these conversations. We want to hear from listeners because that's the really important thing, whether, you know, people do take that sense of identity and that could be linked not just to drugs, as you say, that it's it's sometimes, you know, you think about people who are into uh, clubbing or raving, then it's it's very much built in with music and dancing. And it might be medicalised users that might be, you know, not being in pain and it might draw a sense of identity there in terms of your control over your life, I guess, like you were mm. saying before. And I think it like it's also linked to certainly the people that I've spoken to um, gender is a big thing. So people, sp- particularly mothers, don't, you know, feel most more stigmatised. So to be a mother and somebody who uses controlled substances, certainly mothers are labelled, they're judged yep. for that. And I remember having a conversation with somebody who said, you know, I smoke cannabis every night. She was a mother and she was saying, I don't tell anybody about that. I'm so worried about people hearing or, or judging me as a bad mother. However, my husband can talk about being um, really intoxicated by alcohol, like completely pissed and like, you know, basically have a laugh with his mates about that. He's allowed separate identities. He's allowed to be a bloke and allowed to be a father as well. And I think sometimes mothers are afforded that or they're judged a lot more. So I think um, and we know kind of race and ethnicity as well. Yeah thinking about who is criminalized and you know how people are kind of identified in that sense and being stopped and searched and being judged and being connected to these uh, you know criminal behaviors is something that is it can be very stigmatizing for people definitely yeah it's like that double stigma isn't it i think that's what we're interested in is is gaining as many experiences and you know we want to hear from you we want to hear from the listeners about whether you find this particularly stigmatizing part of your life, whether you um, shy away from that identity, whether you adopt those identities, what the benefits you think. This is all really interesting in terms of uh, kind of policy discussion. And as talking about with Matt, kind of getting this heard, getting this out there, that it's not just the burden on that 10% of people that we, we kind of got a more full view. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you'll have seen this interview as well. Professor Carl Hart, he's a professor at Columbia University. Uh, He's recently written a book, uh, I think it's called Drug Use for Grownups. uh, And he's written one before that as well. Both are fantastic. Um, And in an interview, recent interview that was published in The Guardian uh, this month, he mentioned that he was uh, a functional heroin user and he uses heroin and he came out and admitted that. And He basically said that when it comes to skewing the perception of people who use drugs and just focusing on focus on the harms, we do come away with this distorted picture. And he uses an analogy of it being like driving a car. If we just focus the discussion on accidents that were associated with driving cars, then everybody would would avoid driving a car, wouldn't they? And it's the same Mm -hmm. thing with drug use. If we just focus on the harms associated and the discourse and the language that we've used so far has predominantly focused on that 
we do yeah. then get this distorted picture. Yeah. So Professor David Nutt, he didn't come out as a person who uses drugs himself at this time, but in 2009, he was sacked as the government's drugs advisor. This resonated with me quite a lot, actually, because I was in my final year of my undergrad degree studying drug policy for the first time. So I wrote my <laughs> my final essay on this. So I remember it was 2009 that he got sacked. And the yeah. reason why he got sacked is because he compared uh, the harms of ecstasy to horse riding. Mm. And that doesn't go along with this like rhetoric that drug users should be stigmatized, demonized. They're bad. They're sick. Both potentially. Um, so he had to go. So he got sacked. So he faced stigma just by kind of trying to challenge the overarching narrative, didn't he? Yeah, definitely. So that's what people are up against, aren't they? When people try to to kind of speak in a different way about mm. about drugs, about talking about and we'll talk in the next episode. We're going to focus a lot on pleasure there, which will be a really interesting discussion. But you know, we, we, you know, if we try and break free from that, there's often a lot of barriers, there's often a lot of consequences to doing that. Um, and, you know, we can see that over time. And I'm, you know, I'm always really encouraged and, you know, love to hear from people like Matt Southwell or from Carl Hart, who kind of really talk really truthfully about from that personal point of view. And I think trying to encourage our research, you know, sorry, try to encourage people to to get involved. This is a way that you don't have to publicly talk about. You don't have to be publicly saying that you're a drug taker. You can be involved in this research. It can be confidential. You know, you can um, write, a, you know, write for us, write about your experiences. You can do more creative arts around your experiences. You can have a one to one private confidential interview with one of the team. This is a way of, of being part of a bigger movement without having you yourself to stand on a platform and talk about it. And, it, and it's about bringing that too. So, you know, I, I do always appreciate and, you know, I'm in awe of the courage and bravery that people have to kind of come forward and speak about such very personal parts of their lives. You know, it really is personal. It, it mm. is something to do with, you know, you'll know from a rights perspective it's about you know it's our right to privacy we don't yeah. have to talk about these things however we want to we want to encourage the discussion we want it to be broader than just focusing on a few um people or just those in treatment just those ones in contact with criminal justice definitely yeah and I think there are parallels that can be drawn here. And he does refer to this with the LGBT plus community when he talks about the sort of labels and stuff that they've reclaimed to, to be empowered. And I would say you could draw those parallels even with the term coming out. You know, I yeah. think the language used there, it's historically been used with other historically oppressed groups. You know, when you do speak to the LGBT plus community, often they have they've had this um, argument leveled at them well why isn't there a straight pride why doesn't that exist why is there just a great a gay pride well you never have to come out as straight do you that's the status quo you don't have to do that so it kind of makes me wonder if we're still talking in terms of coming out which we are will there ever sort of be a drug user pride or does that even does that actually exist now you know release yeah. did a fantastic campaign a few years ago about nice people take drugs uh, to increase the awareness there you know uh, people who use lsd and psych the psychedelic community have bicycle day so they celebrate the day that albert hoffman first discovered the effects of lsd 
we've also perhaps I suppose the one thing that we that I would say we do have that is perhaps the equivalent of drug user pride is 420 so it's uh, you know cannabis users from around the world come together don't they on April the uh, the 20th uh, to smoke cannabis in celebration of the plants and also to challenge these prohibitionist drug laws. So I think the language that we use is very important and I think we can draw parallels with other uh, oppressed groups. And all that does is it kind of reflects back to us that drug policy and drug prohibition, it's about social control. And I do think Matt touches on that really well in, in your conversation as well. So I suppose just kind of like linked to that then to kind of end on and to think about that, you know, 2021 marks 50 years of the Misuse of Drugs Act. And, you know, we've seen on social media, and if you search on social media for the hashtag 50 years of failure, you can follow that uh, a movement that's been initiated by those key drug policy reform organisations in the UK. So Transform Drug Policy Foundation, the Only One's Child Campaign, Drug Science Release, LEAP, which is Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And they're really drawing attention to the fact I saw today release had put up a kind of telephone from 1971 and said this is what a telephone looked like in 1971, just to show how outdated our laws are. And I think it's a really poignant time in history, isn't it? You know, like it's it's it is 50 years from, you know, from this this legislation and it's time for change and there's certainly that sense of a movement and momentum going and you know we're really glad to be part of that movement and to make, to play our small part in that and we can do that with the help of listeners and the help of people within our, our research. We've reached the end of this episode thank you for listening we'd like to credit and thank Anna Duffy at A Duffy Design for our logo and branding this podcast was produced by Neil Scott. <laughs> Ha 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 ha!